Okay, please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Let's read beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, or as we like to say in the King James, because that's how half of us memorized it, text. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you, many of us with heavy hearts, with burdens that seem too great for us to bear. We need a Savior, a Savior who can stoop down to us in our pain, in our weakness, in our suffering, in our sin, and save us. Would you reveal him to us this morning? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to truly believe? Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning we have the second week in our series, Who is Jesus? It is the most important question anyone can ask, and it's a question that everyone must answer. A question everyone has to deal with. So who is Jesus? People have fought over who he is for millennia. They were fighting over who he was all the way back when he walked the earth. He asked his disciples, who do people say I am? We could ask the same thing today. Who do people say Jesus is? What answers would they give? We could probably come up with as many answers as we could come up with people. A good teacher, a good man, a work of fiction, an idea, a communist revolutionary. People believe all kinds of crazy things about Jesus, right? When people imagine Jesus, what do they imagine? When you imagine Jesus, what do you imagine? You probably have pictures and images in your head, right? Most of the images we have in our head are of bearded ladies with pretty hair and soft, glowing expressions. Stuff from kitschy evangelical pop culture. Stuff from children's storybook Bibles. I know if you have a baby church to the king, we give you guys a storybook Bible. And in that storybook Bible, there are pictures of Jesus. It's the same storybook Bible used in our nursery, but just a little thing about me, I hate pictures of Jesus everywhere, even in those storybook Bibles. Why? Because they lie. That's why. Every artist has an agenda, whether they realize it or not. Every artist has a vision, something they're trying to say about Jesus, a way they're trying to characterize him in the way that they draw him, in the pictures they paint. So you have a lot of soft, sort of wussy Jesuses, or like really impish, boyish Jesuses. And that gets stuck in our heads and in our kids' heads from the youngest ages. Why does anybody draw a picture of uh, Revelation 19 Jesus? Y'all know that Jesus? That Jesus has eyes that are flames of fire. He has a sword. He's riding on a horse. He's got king of kings and lord of lords, like, tattooed or written on his thigh. Why does anybody draw that picture? Because that Jesus isn't safe, that's why. That's why. Everywhere you look, people are trying to take the edge off of Jesus, trying to make him safe, 
Make him into a pretty boy. Make him into our own image. Even if we try to depict him in a movie or a TV series, he's a pretty white boy. Or if we try to say, okay, this one we're going to get right, we're still going to make sure that he's got beautiful big brown eyes and a really charming smile and the kind of Jesus that you would just like to give a hug. We don't know what Jesus looked like, though. In every way, we're trying to make Jesus just a man or just a good man. More than anything, a man in our own image that fits our sensibilities of who we want Jesus to be. So last week, we came hard at that type of response, right? No one had a greater impact on the world than Jesus, so Jesus demands to be taken seriously. Jesus said he is God. That leaves us two options. Either he was telling the truth, he is who he says he is, or he's a madman or worse. Jesus is God. Always has been. From eternity past to this present day, and that changes everything. That means that we order our lives around him. But there's a way to react to that sort of kind of kitschy, bearded lady Jesus, hippie Jesus, in a way that is harmful too. And that's to do the opposite. Instead of diminishing his godness, his, his divinity, it's actually pretty easy for us to diminish his humanity. And that's just as bad. In fact, it's heresy. It's the type of heresy that each one of us functionally is guilty of all the time, at least believing it. If you have ever felt that Jesus was not able to relate to you, if you've ever felt like he couldn't understand what your life is like, that he couldn't imagine what it's like to go through something that you've gone through, to feel the pain that you feel, if you've ever felt abandoned by him or alone, like you can't come to him. That's believing this lie about Jesus. It's really easy to do. It's really easy to have a Jesus that exists only in stained glass cathedrals, that's only holy, that's beyond us. A Jesus that sort of cheated. A Jesus that really is only a fake man, not a real man that can relate to you, not a man-man but a fake man, in the same way that Clark Kent is a fake man, right? Does, super, does Clark Kent bleed? What's the answer to that question? Do you bleed? The answer is no, actually, no, he doesn't. He doesn't bleed. You can, he can dress in a suit, he can wear his dorky glasses. At the end of the day, he's an alien from another planet and he's not actually like us. And no, he doesn't bleed. He is Superman all the time. Sometimes he pretends to not be Superman, but actually he's Superman. He's not just a dude. And that's how we sometimes think of Jesus. He's God, except he pretended to be a man for a while or something. That's a lie. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. It's a lie that is meant to take you and I in our despair in our suffering, because you've been abused, you've been hurt, you've been abandoned, you've been betrayed, and it's meant to make you feel isolated from Jesus. Or worse, it's meant to make you into a hypocrite. Because if you think Jesus was faking it when he came, if you think that he was faking it when he lived as a man, you'll think living the Christian life is just faking it. That's what you'll think. 
You'll think the Christian life is pretending to be happy and holy, pretending that the bullets bounce off your chest like they do Clark Kent's chest, pretending that your pain and your suffering isn't real, that your anger and your lust isn't really real because you don't have a Jesus you can take those things to, not really. You feel like you're supposed to not have those things and you have a Jesus you can't take them to and you don't know what to deal, uh, how to deal with them, you don't know what to do with them except pretend that they're not real. You know the kind of Christian that says they're never angry? They're like the most angry people you know? This is why. No struggles, no pain, no sorrow, no anger, no sin, no suffering. We're all just sort of waiting for our private jets to take us to our orthodontist appointments. That was a Joel Osteen joke. (laughs) The Christian smile's not made in a lab. It's a callback to months ago, I know. The Christian smile's not made in a lab. It doesn't hide or mask pain. No Clark Kent glasses for Jesus. No capes for us. No pretending. So today, our answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is a man in every possible way. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every way. His life wasn't a game. His struggles weren't a show. There's not a thing in your life you have gone through that you are going through that you will go through that he cannot sympathize with you in. What's the passage I read for today's sermon? It's a Christmas passage, right? It's Christmas. What happened at Christmas? Jesus was, he was born. He was born. And what does that mean? It means for nine months, he was carried in a woman's belly. It means he came out in the usual way. He was a baby. He did all the normal things that babies do. He was a little boy. He did all the normal things little boys do. He grew up. He had a family. He hit puberty. He did all the things. He learned how to work. He was known known as a carpenter and as the son of a carpenter. In Mark 6, people were offended at his teaching and what did they say about him? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? We know this dude. We know his mom, we know his brothers, we know his work, his craftsmanship. Isn't this just a dude? In scripture, we see Jesus being hungry. One of my favorite little things in scripture is Jesus has been like fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. And in uh, Matthew chapter four, it says, after 40 days of fasting, he was hungry. It's like, really? (laughs) Why did the Bible need to say that? Uh, Why? Because we will be tempted to think that Jesus was Superman. Jesus was hungry. It's important that it said that. Very obvious thing. Because we are always tempted to believe he wasn't actually a man. He was somehow above and beyond it all. And he wasn't. He was hungry. He was thirsty. You think of times that he was thirsty and the Bible records that for us so that we know. The woman at the well, give me a drink. On the cross, I thirst. He was tired. So we see him eating. We see him drinking. We see him sleeping. 
Some of the most relatable moments I think of Jesus are moments like when he's so tired, he sleeps through a storm. The disciples are trying to wake him up. (laughs) The times when he retreats and climbs a mountain just to get away from people to rest and to pray and be by himself for a while. You go find those passages in the Bible and they're always after big crowd scenes. Like Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then he like goes up on the mountain by himself and he tells his disciples, leave me alone, right? Let's not be over-spiritual about that. Jesus spent a lot of time among a lot of people and he needed time to be by himself and with God and to rest. Just from a pure physical standpoint, if you've ever been that tired or worn out, guess what? Jesus has been there. Jesus knew hunger and thirst and pain and suffering and tiredness. Jesus could be cut. Jesus bled. He also knew the joy of hard work and the pleasure of food and drink. He went to parties. He was accused of being a, a, a glutton and a drunkard by his enemies, which means he was also lied about. Okay, Jesus had a body like us. That's one thing, right? Maybe that's not where we all tend to get tripped up. Maybe it's when it comes to his emotions. But here's the thing. We see in scripture, Jesus running the full gamut of emotions. He had the same relationships that we have, the same uh, issues in relationships that we have. He had a mom. He loved his mom. He had friends. He loved his friends. He loved children. And not just generally, like, I generally love people, which is how we tend to think of Jesus. Jesus generally loves everybody and loves everybody all the same. But there were people he had special relationships with that he loved specially, like his, like his mom, like his friends. There's a, a disciple who's known as the disciple Jesus loved. It's John. Because he loved, that meant he was also sad and grieved and that he wept. In John 11, Jesus was told this, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. You've got a friend. His name's Lazarus and he's sick. What happened to Lazarus? Lazarus died. And what did Jesus do? Jesus wept. Cried. He also wept in other parts of scripture too. He wept over the hardness of people's hearts. He wept over unrepentant Jerusalem. He had compassion for the poor and the sick and the needy. And because he had compassion and love, he also had anger. Can you think of times Jesus got angry? What's the most obvious thing that pops into your head? He's probably angry that time he made a whip and tried to whip everybody out of the temple, right? There's a little anger there. There's a lot of anger there. He made a whip. They were selling and exchanging in God's temple. In the court of the Gentiles, it was supposed to be set apart for people like you and me to come and pray. That's where they set up their changing tables, their money changing tables, and that made him angry. He got angry when they tried to keep the children from coming to him. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Maybe my favorite time Jesus got angry was in Mark. He was teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath and there was a man there with a withered hand. And everybody in in the synagogue did not see a man with a withered hand who couldn't work and who suffered. What they saw was an opportunity to trap Jesus. Is he gonna heal this guy on the Sabbath or isn't he? I don't know, let's find out. And this is how twisted it got. They hoped that he would do it. Not because they cared about the man, 
but so that they could trap him and accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus knew it. He knew it was all a setup. He knew there was a man suffering. He knew they wanted him to heal him so that they could accuse him. So he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And no one said a word. Crickets. Then this is what the Bible says. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And you have it right there. Anger, grief, defiance. He knew what they were going to try to do. He decided he didn't care. Jesus moves towards those who are poor and needy and broken, and he does not care who opposes him. That's the Jesus I love. Isn't that the Jesus you love? The Jesus who can stare down the crowd, who will call their bluff, who always moves to the weak and the needy and the vulnerable? And his enemies have always been that way. Small, petty, shameless. The people don't matter to them. What matters is power. People are tools, they're leverage. Jesus is a threat, let the people suffer. Their champion has to die because he's in the way. There are a lot of other things that you can find in Jesus that are very human. You can find humor in his teaching and the ways that he mocks the Pharisees. Try to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. Have you ever just thought about the analogy? It's kind of funny. He compares the Pharisees to men walking around with logs sticking out of their eyes while they're trying to pick specks out of other people's eyes. It's, It's a joke. He's making fun of them. You can find in Jesus a kind of holy aggression, especially towards those who are self-righteous and who oppress the weak and the poor. You can also find him agonizing as he approached his death, pleading that the cup would pass from him. You can find him lonely and betrayed even by his closest friends and family. Beaten, slapped, spat on, stolen from. And Judas was stealing from the money bag, lied about. Wasn't just Judas who betrayed him either. Remember, he was abandoned by his friends. Everybody left him that night. In John 7, John tells us not even his brothers were believing in him, right? Jesus had a family, he had brothers. We don't think about that. Not even his brothers were believing in him. In other words, Jesus knows what it is to be abandoned, to be betrayed, to be alone, to be abandoned not just by the crowds, but by those closest to him, by his friends and family. So physically, Jesus has been there. Emotionally, Jesus has been there. How about spiritually? It's a place where it's easy to have a hard time. Okay, but it is also the place that I think matters most. It's easy to look and see, okay, Jesus prayed. If Jesus prayed, we should pray. Jesus worshiped God the Father. He did the work of his Father. He said the words of his Father. Okay, we should worship God the Father. We should try to do the work of God the Father. We should try to say the words of God the Father. Also, that sort of feels like it touches on his divinity some and is kind of connected to his miracles. So that kind of feels a little otherly, feels beyond us. What we have, I think, the hardest time accepting and understanding, though, is this right here from Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's hard for us. Understand Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. Part of why that's hard for us is because when we experience temptation, we experience it differently than Jesus did. When we're tempted, temptation meets sinful desire in our hearts. We don't know how to think about Jesus was tempted because we can't separate the temptation from the sinful desire. But Jesus was tempted. In fact, Jesus was led into the wilderness and tempted by the devil himself. He was tempted with the same temptations that Adam and Eve faced in the Garden of Eden. And it's not a coincidence. You remember Jesus was fasting in the wilderness and he was tempted first with what? Forbidden food. Turn the stones into bread. What was the second temptation? To give himself to death. The serpent told Adam and Eve, you will not surely die. He told Jesus to throw himself off the temple and trust God would send his angels to save him. You will not surely die. With worshiping, third temptation was with worshiping the serpent and giving the keys of the kingdom to him. It's what Adam did and it's what Jesus refused to do. When the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, in every respect as we are, it means all ways. It means every respect. That doesn't mean that the temptations are identical. Okay, Jesus didn't live a billion lives. He lived one life. But what's essential to know is this. There is nothing in your life, there is no temptation, no weakness, no suffering that Jesus cannot look at and say, I know what that's like. Here's the difference. When we're tempted, desire rises up in us and that sin with Jesus was tempted. Sinful desire never rose up. He didn't sin, even in his heart. And that's why we can trust him to help us. He knows what it's like to be tempted and he knows what it's like to resist every time. He even knows what it's like to bear the weight of the consequences of sin. Not because he sinned, but because he bore our sin and their consequences for us. To the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the point. Jesus has been there wherever you are, wherever you've been. Jesus has been there before you. And that means he can walk with you through anything. He can get you to the other side. A couple days ago, I was reading a blog post that Dylan wrote. Dylan and Ashley aren't here this morning. But it's a blog post, it's public. Put it on Facebook. Dylan was talking about how he and Ashley have walked through three miscarriages, three in a row, back to back to back. it was already a difficult time in their life. Miscarriages aren't things that we think about often because we don't talk about them often. But a lot of people have suffered through that. They're surely not the only ones in this church who've suffered through that sort of thing. Anyhow, Dylan was writing about the grief and the anger and the bitterness and the sense of guilt that he's had to deal with and the ways he still deals with and carries those things. It's hard. It's a sad blog post, but it was one that was ultimately about the comfort we have in Jesus. And in that post, he quoted this little bit from a a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a 19th century Baptist pastor from London. He's a hero of mine. I named one of my sons after him. You can figure out who that is if you don't know. Here's the quote. Okay, listen. 
If in my grief I fled to Jesus and there was about him a secret inability to sympathize, an incapacity to admit me to his heart, pure as crystal though that barrier might be, I should dash myself against it and die in despair. A Jesus who never wept could never wipe away my tears. That were a grief I could not bear if he could not have fellowship with me and could not understand my woe. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to weep real tears with real sadness. And he knows how to comfort those who suffer because he's been there, because he's suffered. It also means that he knows how to help those who are weak and tempted because he's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is God, but Jesus is more because Jesus is man, like us. And in Jesus, infinite holiness meet with perfect meekness and humility. He is higher than the heavens, and he dwells with the broken, the needy, and the contrite of heart, which means that you can actually come to him. Last week, I did this little riff. I said, when Jesus was born, Mary held God in her arms. When Jesus was born, Mary held God in her arms because God was a baby. When Jesus walked the earth, God's feet touched the ground because God had feet. When Jesus shook a man's hand, that man shook hands with God because God had hands. That body was a real body and that body was broken and those hands and feet were pierced. And they still have the holes today because Jesus became a man. And that means you can come to him with your burdens, with your pain, with your sin, with your suffering. And you can find in him someone who understands and is ready to forgive and heal and restore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to become a man and to walk this earth. Pray that you would humble our hearts before you and that you would help us to come to him with faith. In Jesus' name, amen.